Good morning. Glad to have you here with us this morning. Today we're going to be in the book of 1 John, chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, so I'll give you a minute to turn there. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Pray with me. Our gracious Father in heaven above, we thank you for that prayer of confession that lines up so perfectly with the words you have for us today. I pray that you will open our hearts and our minds and our ears to hear uh, the folly of loving this world, the beauty of following you, of fighting temptation, of honoring you with our lives because there is nothing meaningful in this world. Bless our time this morning, I pray. Amen. I learned in a writing class one time that the best way to write is to tell them what you're going to tell them and then tell them and then tell them what you told them. I think, I'm pretty sure John was not in that class, but that's exactly what he does here at the beginning of his book. John 1, 1, 1 John 1, 1, he says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. This is the theme that John carries forward throughout the entire book. He's writing to exhort us to not sin, But knowing we are weak, he gives us hope. He says, don't sin. But if we do sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin because we have a great mediator and a savior who has paid for our sins. And we can know that we are forgiven if we keep his commandments. John gives us this message of hope and encouragement and exhortation. He says, don't sin. Walk in the light, not in the darkness. But but if you sin, embrace Embrace the hope and forgiveness you've received. And then we come to our passage today, starting in verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Interesting. What does that mean to love the world, to love the things of this world? So John brings us here with this lead up of encouragement. You are forgiven. You are called out of the darkness and into the light. By the power of Christ's righteousness, we have overcome Satan. And then he says, so don't love the things of this world or the things in the world. This is not not a new commandment he's writing to us. This is a continuation of exactly what he's been saying. He's writing to us that we may not sin. Loving this world is sin. Loving this world is walking in darkness. It's simple. We are forgiven of sin. We are a different person than we, when we, who we were before Christ, right? So stop longing for that sin. Stop loving this world. Today we're going to focus on what that means to love this world. Do not love this world or the things of this world. What does John mean when he says the world or the things of this world? Fortunately for us, he clarifies it right there in verse 16. He says, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. And he makes it clear, the consequences for this idolatrous love are severe. If you love this world, the love of the Father is not in you. Let's examine what that looks like as it relates to our eternal salvation. 
so that we may walk in the light. Okay, let's start broadly. What is the world? What's the world? We, use this, we hear this term in Scripture a lot, right? Scripture often refers to the world as, as the opposite of the things of God, right? On one hand, you have Christ. You have things that matter eternally. Love one another. Keep my commandments. Live holy. On the other hand, you have the things of the world, things that are in direct opposition to God, right? The realm of the evil one. In a broad sense, this world is that fallen place where the saving grace of Christ has not landed. Romans 12.2 tells us, Romans 12.2 is a passage I bet many of us have memorized, at least at some level. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Do not be conformed to this world. Do not take the shape of this world. Do not be indistinguishable from this world. Don't blend into this world like a Christian with a trench coat and a fake fake mustache slinking into the bushes. This world is full of sin and pleasures designed to lure us away from the things of God. It's filled with all sorts of wickedness and temptation. Do not be like this world. Do not be conformed, but, but be transformed. Be transformed, how? By the renewal of your mind. Not just justification. Not just this one-time act where Christ declares us as sinless and blameless before God, but sanctification. By, by the renewal of our mind, by actively and intentionally giving, denying ourselves, picking up our cross and following Jesus. By living holy, by, by practicing obedience to Christ. Remember, back in 1 Peter, he says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. So don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed actively. How? By your obedience. Why? That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, good and perfect and acceptable, that we may know light from darkness that we may know what is from God and what is from the world, that we may not love the world. I'm sure many of us hate a lot of things about this world. I say this all the time. I hate this world. I hate this world. War, violence, radical godless agendas, soaring gas prices, meatless hamburgers. Putin, right? I mean, it's easy to hate the things in this world that bother us. But what about the things of this world that entice us? Look at your Instagram feed, those of you who partake in that. Lust, opulence, success, fame. What about what you see on TV or YouTube or your video games? What about the American dream? Nice house, nice car, nice vacation every year. Florida. As Christians, we have a clear call throughout Scripture. The holy God chose the nation of Israel, right? He called them to be set apart, consecrated to him, to have no other God before him, to worship him. We are, we are that new child, children of God. We are the new Israel. We are the people of God, the true descendants of Abraham, according to our faith, right? We have been called to have no other gods before him. Yet we still struggle with loving this world, with loving comfort and security, with self-gratification, with filling our time with the selfish pursuits that bring us pleasure, but so often do nothing to further the kingdom of God. 
James 4, 4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Can you imagine a worse strategic position than to be labeled enemy of God? The God who with his utterance can create the entire universe? The God who can defeat entire armies? The God who can rain down judgment to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? Who can strike evildoers down dead in their tracks? Who can raise men from the dead? Who can cast out demons? Woe to him who makes himself an enemy of God. This is not a place we want to be. But do you not know that loving this world makes you an enemy of God? Continuing in verse 15, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. What's the love of the Father? Interesting phrase. What is the love of the Father? At the Last Supper, Jesus is gathered with his disciples. And remember, John, the author of this passage, is there. And he tells them in John 13, 34, Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Just as I have loved you, as I have loved you with the love of the Father, you are to love one another. With this love, all people will know that you are my disciples. Pretty clear. So let's reverse engineer this. If you don't love one another, you will not be known as a follower of Christ. If you don't love one another, if you don't have a sincere love for your brothers and sisters, if you don't seek to fulfill the love one another commands, to exhort one another, to serve one another, if you don't give with generosity to one another, then, I mean, I'm sorry, if you give with generosity with one another, then you are marked as a disciple of Christ, right? But if we fail, if we fail to love one another properly, to abide in this fellowship, we fail to love as Christ has loved, then by extension, by sheer mathematical, analytical logic, we will not be recognized as disciples of Christ. The more we pursue selfish desires, the more we love this world. And if you love this world, the love of the Father is not in you. I tried to think of an example. I always embarrass myself, and that's okay. But it really is as simple as this, right? These two polar opposites. I would love to be in shape. I would love to be in shape. I know, round is a shape. I hear it all the time. But I don't enjoy playing this game every Sunday morning of what's going to fit today, okay? I don't enjoy the toll it takes in my back and my knees and the increased risk of heart disease. But I don't also enjoy running, okay? You know what I love, truly love? Cookies. cookies. I love cookies more than any human you know. I promise you that's true. These two loves being in shape and eating cookies, are diametrically opposed. I cannot, I, outside of liposuction, I cannot eat my cookies and wear the clothes I currently own. If you love this world, the love of the Father is not in you. These also are diametrically opposed. First John tells us, just a few verses above this, First John 2, 4, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. If you say you know God, but you don't keep his commandments, if you continue in your sin, the truth is not in you. 
If we disregard repeated calls to live holy as Christ is holy, to obey His commandments, guess what? The truth is not in us. The love of the Father is not in us. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. This is a stark warning. Loving this world means loving yourself more than loving God. Loving this world means loving your sin more than loving God. Matthew 6.24, no one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Loving this world means not loving God. This sounds harsh. I know. I know how harsh this sounds, but I don't see any other way to read this. Whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. If you do not live your life in a way that shows you are committed to following Christ, to obeying his commandments, if you love this world and the pleasures of this world, if you love yourself more than you love others, if you are indistinguishable from this world, if your coworkers, your classmates, teammates, if they don't know you're a Christian, if they don't see that difference in your life, then you need to seriously examine whether or not the love of the Father is in you. Continuing on, verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. So John adds clarity here what this world is. In this sense, it's shorthand for everything that's not of God, right? It's an encapsulation of everything we've been talking about. Similar to when Jesus, he was asked which of the Ten Commandments is the greatest. He boiled it down to just two. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He didn't override the Ten Commandments All those commandments are subtypes of of those two. Similarly here, right? We're going to use these three clauses, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life to kind of broadly categorize what loving this world means. So when we say the desires of the flesh, that first clause, the desires of the flesh, what comes to mind? Think about that. What comes to mind? Probably something different for everyone, honestly. In Scripture, the word flesh is often used to refer to our natural sinful nature. We, being born again, have been given a new heart, yet we are not, nor will we be, this side of heaven, sinless. That's why John's writing, to exhort us to not sin, but to encourage us when we do. The desires of the flesh in this context refer to us giving in to that old nature, our desire to sin. Look at Galatians 5, beginning in verse 16. Galatians 5, Paul writes to us, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. Spirit, flesh, opposite ends of the spectrum. One is of God, one is of this world. He continues on in verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, bits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things, listen up now, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
There is not a lot of wiggle room here. Walk in the Spirit. Walk in obedience to Christ. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Gratify the desires of the flesh. And you will not inherit the kingdom of God. What are the desires of the flesh? Well, we, we just got a pretty substantial list on that, right? Some are pretty obvious and pretty severe. Drunkenness, orgies, sorcery, not me. Some of those probably hit a little closer to home. Jealousy, envy, fits of anger, sexual immorality, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. And what does Paul say about those who practice such things? They will not inherit the kingdom of God. Brother and sister, take heed. This is no small matter. The language throughout Scripture is unified and crystal clear. If you give in to the desires of the flesh, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. If you say, I know God, but don't obey his commandments, you are a liar, and the Holy Spirit does not live in you. I know this is not a feel-good sermon. John is saying that as we give into sin, every time we lose that battle against temptation, we scoot a little bit more out of the light and into the darkness. We are called to make our calling and our election sure. We are commanded over and over and over again in Scripture to live holy as Christ is holy. A love for this world is giving into sin. It's giving into temptation. We know gossip is wrong, but... Oh, it feels so good to have a juicy secret to tell. They won't tell anyone else. We know rivalry and dissension is wrong, but man, that guy's obnoxious, and I'm not pointing at anyone. We know sexual immorality is wrong, but do you have to clear your browser history before anyone borrows your computer? If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We may struggle with certain sins and temptations. I know we do. We all do. But every time we give into that desire, the desires of the flesh, we weaken our ability to fight that sin. We love the world a little bit more. We have a good and a gracious Savior who is ready and willing to forgive us our sin. But we must repent of that sin. We must turn from that sin. John, John gives us hope. We have an advocate with Jesus Christ with the Father. This is not a message of damnation, but this is a strong warning. If you love this world, if you love your sin, if you do not turn from your sin, but rather keep it hidden in that dark corner so no one can see it, then you're in danger of being those that practice such things. And those that practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Moving on to the next clause there, the desires of the eyes. Desires of the eyes. That's an interesting phrase. What are the desires of the eyes? Another way to think about it is, what do your eyes desire? There's two ways of looking at that phrase. One is coveting. What do you covet? What do you see that you wish you had that you don't have? And the other one is, what do you just desire? What does your heart desire to do with your own self and your own life? Exodus 20, 17. This is one of the Ten Commandments, right? Straight from mouth of God to Moses to us. Exodus 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. Nor shall you covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Let me modernize that for us. Don't be jealous of your friend's house. If you're single, don't be jealous of your married friends. Don't be jealous of your coworker's promotion. Don't be jealous your friend got a new truck. 
Don't covet their vacation, Florida. Don't covet how green their lawn is. Don't be jealous that they don't struggle with chronic illness. Do not covet. Covetous means I am not satisfied. God, you have not blessed me enough. God, you're not giving me the lifestyle I deserve. God, you're not enough for me. Covetousness is jealousy. And not only is jealousy a disregard for the creator of the universe, jealousy also creates animosity between you and your brother and sister. It's not loving your brother and sister. The desires of the eyes is also just living for yourself, doing whatever you want when you want. Maybe, maybe you truthfully could care less if someone has a nice car, a nice house, or goes on vacation. Um, but maybe you just want to do whatever the heck you want whenever you want. Kids, you guys like doing chores? Thank you. <laughs> Homework? Are you jealous of your friends allowed to have an iPhone and you're not? What about all of us? Do we just do whatever our, brings us pleasure and our eyes desire? Are you a couch potato, a video game addict? Is all your free time spent golfing or fishing or hunting, playing video games, or laying in bed, scrolling your smartphone feed? I belong to a golf club in town, and there are men who are at that course four, five, six days a week, who golf almost every single day. I love golf. There is nothing wrong with golf, except maybe the way I play it at times. If you spend the better part of 20, 30, 40 hours a week dedicated to your leisurely pursuits, I'd speculate you're living a life that loves this world. Maybe you have a job that's less demanding. Some people work only two, three, four days a week. How do you spend your free time? Do you still struggle to get your Bible reading in? Can you not make a growth group or a discipleship group? This is not to judge. This is to exhort. Because as we'll see later, what you devote yourself to, what you devote your time to matters. Because the things of this world will fade away. Is the lion's share of your free time spent doing the things that bring you pleasure? And for some of us, that's work. That's what a workaholic is, right? Someone who's always busy at work, building their career, making more money, got to provide, right? You can do chores around the house. You can work on a car. You can find activities that sound like I'm being productive and busy, but really, you're doing it for yourself. You're doing it for selfish reasons. Our sinful nature desires one thing above all else to satisfy our own pleasures. Are you fulfilling all that God has created you to be? Maybe you don't covet anything anyone else has. Maybe you don't care enough to. If you're living for yourself, then you are loving this world. If you're nothing more than a pleasure-seeking individual with no thought or care or consideration to the things of heaven, then you're giving in to the desires of your eyes. Moving on to the pride of life. Man, another interesting phrase. I really had to do a lot of thinking on these, reading and praying. Pride of life. It's also been interpreted the pride of possessions in other translations. I think both are accurate in this context, and we'll, we'll talk about them both. The pride of life is the greatest lie the devil ever told, that we can be equal, equal with God. When the serpent said to Eve, speaking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What a prideful snare he set for Eve. 
The pride of life is this sinful arrogance and self-sufficiency. The pride in who you are or what you have or how others see you. It's all about self. It's all about me. It's a narcissistic self-focus and self-love that dominates today's world. And I cut out about 10 minutes of going on about Facebook and Instagram and social media. But you can insert all that in your mind about the me, me, me focus of social media. Maybe you have the desires of the flesh mostly under control, at least the outward manifestations of them. But the pride of life can creep into your heart easily and subtly. Let us guard our hearts and minds against the sinful love of self. Pride can easily grab a hold of us. And I truly believe this for many Christians, starting right here. Pride is our greatest downfall. It is the weapon Satan uses to ruin families, to ruin marriages, to ruin relationships, to ruin churches. 1 Corinthians 4.7 tells us, What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Do you take pride in your hard work or good decisions? Got things going on pretty well? Outwardly pretty, doing pretty well? Those are blessings from our Lord. Without Him, we could do nothing. Without our Lord and Savior, I promise you, I'd be a self-gratifying loser. Maybe you're more talented, more successful than others. Maybe you're physically fit. Thankfully, God's humbled me there, as we all know. Maybe you're even more righteous and holy and spiritual than others. Have more scripture memorized. Do not be so full of yourself. Do not fall for that temptation of pride. What do you have that you're so proud of? Do not take pride in such foolish things. Again, 1 Corinthians 1.27 tells us, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. So that we may not boast. Take no pride in anything you think you are. Give all glory and honor to the king of heaven and earth. Let's look at the pride of possessions. This is a pride of the possessions you have as well as anxiety over the possessions you don't have. For many of us, this self-reliance and this pride of possessions keeps us from being fully committed to the Lord. Why do you care so much about your possessions? Pastor Joshua was at my house this week, and he spilled coffee on my couch and my carpet. Sarah, I forgot to tell you. Um, <laughs> we cleaned it up, and I was so magnanimous. Joshua, don't worry about it. It's all going to burn. I could care less. And I truly meant that. I could care less. But if you're going to get in my Land Cruiser, and you, are, are those shoes clean? Hey, uh, is that coffee lid on type? I don't love the Land Cruiser. I tell my kids this. I don't love the Land Cruiser more than I love my kids. I love them all the same. <laughs> what you love may differ, but we all love something. We're selective in maybe what we take, what possessions we take pride in, but we all put way too much value on the deteriorating deteriorating things in this world, the things that are going to fade away, the things that are going to burn. Why do you put so much value in your bank account, whether that number's high or low? Is it because we're afraid to let God take care of us? We must ensure we have enough, more than enough. Is that fear, that fear of want so great 
that we love our possessions more than we love God? Here's an example. In Acts 5, we learn of Ananias and Sapphira. It's a man and a wife, had a piece of property. They sold it. They kept some of the money for themselves, and they gave the rest to the church. And Peter calls him out and says, why would you do that? It was your land. No one told you to sell it. And when you did sell it, no one told you to give the money to us. It was yours. Do what you want with it. Why would they do that? Why would they lie and say, here's all the money. We sold it. We give you all the money. Why would they do that? Pride. Pride of self and pride of possessions. Ananias and Sapphira wanted to look good. They were the original virtue signalers. They probably posted hashtag stand with Ukraine, right? They wanted those around them to look at them and say, wow, look how holy they are. Man, they're awesome. They coveted the esteem that others had gotten for selling land and giving it to the church. They wanted that glory, but they also wanted the money. And they were killed on the spot for that sin. Not for the sin, so we're clear, not for the sin of withholding the money, but for the sin of this pride, this arrogant desire for esteem, and for their sinful love of their possessions. And now we're going to transition to a sermon on giving. I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. But the sentiment does hold. Do you covet your bank account? Do you cover, covet the security that it brings in being able to trust in yourself and not in God? Please note, this is not, not a call to give more. I don't know and I don't care what anyone here gives. But I do care. What do you hold dear in this world? What do you hold so tightly that you may disregard the scriptures that tell us to give generously, to show hospitality, to care for the widows and the orphans? In Luke 21, we read in verse 1, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live in, live on. This is not finger pointing. I stand here truthfully admitting I am not giving all I have to live on, nor am I suggesting anyone do that. Visitor, if you're a visitor here, please hear me. We don't want your money. We don't even pass the offering plate. That's between you and God. We are content with the generosity God has bestowed upon us, but the love of money is the root of all evil. In Matthew 19, we find the story of the rich young ruler. This young man was a good man. He kept all the commandments. He memorized scripture. He obeyed all the ceremonial law. By all outward appearances, this man did not give in to the desires of the flesh. So he asked Jesus, Jesus, what must I do to be saved? Jesus hit him where it hurt. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go Sell what you possess and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. The parable of the sowers. There were four soil types, right? The first one, the birds plucked it off the path. But the second one, the seed sprouted up quickly and it withered because it had no root. This seed is the one of whom John writes, says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments. They claim Christ and they wither away. But then we have the seed that landed among the thorns. And this seed was choked out by the cares of the world 
and the deceitfulness of riches, strangled by the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Sadly, this is not just a parable. This describes way too much of the modern-day church. The seed that landed among the thorns. Claims Christ, sprouts up, goes to church, has Christian friends. But is choked out by career, by Little League, by politics, by hunting, by music, by video games, by fashion, by decorating your house with cute little signs say live, love, coffee. This isn't a parable of one type of non-Christian and three types of Christians. This is a parable of warning to those who lie to themselves and think that they are saved because they said some magic words and give God an hour a week. The only seed in this parable who's inheriting the kingdom of heaven is the one that bears fruit. Mark 8.36 tells us, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Someday we will all die, and we'll leave behind every earthly possession. We'll stand before the creator of heaven and of earth and give an account for our lives. I promise you, kids, your Pokemon collection will not factor into that discussion. Do not desire to gain the world. Brothers and sisters, I exhort you today, this world is passing away. I think the older I get, the more deeply I feel that. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, they are passing away. This world is not Minecraft. You cannot save your progress and continue later. It's not whoever dies with the most toys wins. It's whoever does the will of the Father abides forever. On your deathbed, should you be so lucky, the only comfort you will find is the fact that you are about to enter eternity into the arms of a loving God. And unbeliever, if you do not have that hope for the future, if you wander through this life golfing and fishing and being a dad or being a mom or working hard or hardly working, if you are not setting your desires in the things of God, but rather the things of this world, please, please take heed. They will not bring you comfort when you pass from this life. They won't bring you joy and pleasure and fulfillment even now. You are created for the love of the Father, not the love of this world. By way of application, this week I listened with my son to John Piper's sermon, Don't Waste Your Life, and he read this article from Reader's Digest. It was called Start Now, Retire Early, about Bob and Penny. They retired early and moved to Florida where they spent their days sailing and playing softball and collecting seashells. And Piper says, this is a tragedy. He's right. That is a tragedy. The great lie is that the end goal of our life is a comfortable retirement spent on food and drink and shuffleboard and golf and fishing, all the things I like. I told my son this week, we were having a heart-to-heart conversation, and I said, there is a single goal for your life. Love the Lord. Serve him. Use your talents, your time, and your treasure to further his kingdom. The rest doesn't matter whether you go to college or don't, whether you're a cop or a firefighter or a doctor or a lawyer or a pastor or a missionary, whether you're married or have kids, those don't matter. They are modifiers to who you are, to what you're called to do. Love love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind, with all your soul and with all your strength. Believer, do you struggle with a love for this world? 
I know I do. Sin is pleasurable for a season. James tells us, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not give sin a foothold in your life. Confess your sins to one another. Be accountable. Fight sin, fight temptation, fight lust, fight love for this world. Confess your sin to God because we have a mediator who intercedes on our behalf. Do not find your pride in anything you have or you can do or this world has to offer you because the love of this world, the gratification of sin, the pursuit of pleasure, the love of security, that separates you from the love of the Father.